Today we're at Luke chapter 2, and it's after Jesus' birth, verses 21 <coughs> onwards. But uh, maybe before we look at this in some detail, can I ask any of the children, what do you do when you're happy? What do you do when you're happy? Catherine, laugh. Someone said laugh. Do you say laugh? Yes, good. That's correct. What else? Do you say put on a smiley face? You smile. Yes, good, excellent. You're very happy today, Cameron. Eden, dance around, okay? And if you'd been walking past our window yesterday afternoon, you would have seen an awesome sight. Several people dancing. There's some kind of, I don't know what the game is, but some computer game that you dance, whatever. I'll never, ever do it again. Right. Josiah. You giggle, okay, we're still, there's still something else I'm looking for, what you do when you're happy. Sing, that's it, you sing, you sing when you're happy. And when we come into this, this part of the Bible, Luke's gospel, there are <coughs> four songs right at the very beginning, because with Jesus coming into the world, it is a case of being joy to the world. There's Mary's song, there's Zechariah's song, there's the angel's song, and there's the one we mainly look at today, which is Simeon's song. And this man called Simeon uh, was at the temple. He served God in the temple, and he was married to a woman called Anna. And uh, after Jesus was born, on the eighth day he was circumcised. He uh, then was taken to the temple. Mary would have to wait 40 days before she was able to do so, after the birth, they went, then went to the temple in Jerusalem, and they offered a sacrifice, and Mary and Joseph offered a sacrifice, which was the poor person's sacrifice. Um, the child, the firstborn child, this was the first child, had to be redeemed, and that was a special gift of what was of five coins, five shekels that was given. Now, it's important to note that as we read this, the child did not have to be taken to the temple, but he was. So, I'm going to read some parts of this. Uh, I'm going to read from Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, verse 21, and we're going to look at the verses that are up on the screen. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise him, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he'd been conceived. When the time of their purification according to the law of Moses had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. Simeon's song, that those last few verses that we just read, is known by its Latin title, Nunc Dimitus, which means, Now you are dismissing. Simeon and Simon were old people. Uh, Simeon, sorry, and uh, uh, 
Anna were old people. In verse 27, it says she was a widow until she was 84, or it could be that she was a widow for 84 years, and in that case, she'd have been well over 100. But she was an old woman, and Simeon was an old man. And this is him saying, now that this has happened to him, he was ready to die. He's saying he'd waited for many, many, many years for God to fulfill his promise. And I just want to say just a little bit about that. Um, It is a case that we live in a culture where people want instant answers. So, for example, if if you're not a Christian, you might say, well, I'll be a Christian if God answers this prayer, if God gives me this. I I hear that argument all the time. And sometimes you meet people who say, well, I used to be a Christian until something went wrong in my life. Somebody died. I prayed for them, and they died. Or I, I wanted healing from an illness, and I've never got rid of this illness. Or this relationship. I prayed for for this relationship, and it hasn't worked out. And so, you will meet people who will say, I used to believe in Jesus. I used to believe in God. I used to be a Christian. But because of what's happened, because God did not answer, I no longer do so. Now, there are lots of things we could say about that, but the basic one is simply this, that the kind of Christianity that people seem to think is what exists is that Jesus comes and everything's fine, is not the Christianity that's taught in the Bible, and it's not the God that's taught in the Bible. We wait upon the Lord. We look forward to things. I don't know what you're looking forward to in 2011. A lot of us look backwards, and a lot of us kind of don't look forward. We just want to exist. Um, I have a wee thing on uh, my computer, the BBC website, the the Met Office, that tells you what's going to come. And for the past two weeks, this is the truth, every single day I've looked, and it said, in two days' time, it's going to get warmer. And every day I look at it, and it keeps saying, in two days' time. And I even went on Wednesday to the Williams, and I told them, don't worry, guys, there's going to be a thaw. I went on Monday, and I said, there's going to be a thaw on Wednesday, and you'll be able to get out and everything. And I visited them again on on Wednesday and said, I am really, really sorry. It's minus 10 outside. Don't go outside. Because you kept looking ahead, and it kept saying, in two days. Now, I'm absolutely guaranteed that it's going to warm up tonight. Uh, We'll see. But that's that's what you, you have this kind of you look forward in different ways. Now, some of us are just basically looking forward just to survive. Just want to get through the year. We just don't want any bad stuff to happen to us. And I'm afraid that's not going to be the way that it is. We should have, I hope, we have a greater sense of anticipation and hope than that. I like reading over newspaper and magazine reviews of the year that's gone, and uh, somebody said, when I was reading yesterday in one of the magazines, I think it was a spectator, that you could, you could have anticipated a lot of things, but there were events that happened that you could never have anticipated, the volcano blowing up in, in Iceland, for example. I think that we need to look forward with a great deal of anticipation. There are events that I'm really looking forward to in this coming year, and there are things that will happen that I have no idea about. But I know that we have to be like Simeon. We have to wait upon the Lord. What he was looking for was 
God's salvation in Christ. He also had the wisdom to see what God was doing. Sometimes we get really confused about things, and sometimes we really struggle because we don't see the bigger picture. We need to be able to look at and to see that bigger picture. Simeon had a personal revelation from God, verse uh, 26. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he'd seen the Lord's Christ. Most of us don't have that. Most of us don't have God coming and speaking to us directly, giving us that kind of revelation, except for this. And I believe that this is absolutely true, that we have the Scriptures and that God's Word is His revelation to us, and His Word will always bear fruit, and it will always be fulfilled. There are some people who will go into this year, and they think they will receive a word from the Lord that God is going to make them rich, or God is going to make them famous, or God is going to provide what it is, whatever they want. And it's usually what they want that they think they've had a promise from God for. I have no idea. I have no promise from God about being wealthy or about being healthy. I have no idea what is going to happen to me or to you in 2011. Who knows except God? But I know that every single one of the promises that are contained in God's Word are true. And so, like Simeon, we can know that God's Word never fails, and we can know the peace of the Lord. He saw the salvation of the Lord. That's what he said. Not just for Jews, but for all people. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. And I want to say to those of us who are Christians, we need a much, much bigger vision. We need a much, much bigger anticipation of what God can do. I think that uh, if we view this story from the perspective of the 21st century, we're not waiting for Christ to come for the first time. We celebrate that. We are waiting for Christ to return. Like Simeon, we long to see Him with our own eyes, and we treasure the expectation that one day we will. I think in His parables, Jesus encouraged us to live in the expectation of His coming. I think um, I love John's teaching in his letter that, that when we see Him, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. I don't know if any of you have watched the BBC's Nativity uh, scene. I, I have to confess, I started watching it thinking, here we go again. This will either be rubbish, sentimental rubbish, or it'll be heresy. It'll just be someone explaining away the whole thing. And uh, I can recommend you look at Tony Jordan's interviews. He's done various interviews. How he started off, it was his idea to do the nativity. And do you know how he plugged it to the BBC? He, he, Tony Jordan is the guy who writes um, EastEnders. And you're just kind of waiting for the do-do-do-do-do-do bit. You know the, you know the bit that goes with that. Well, his idea was initially to do this story in an inn and to have the whole scene set in the inn. It's basically like the, whatever the rover's return. Oh, that's the other one, isn't it? The, yeah, whatever that is. That's the pub. <laughs> and it was a bit like that. And that was his idea. His idea was to have everyone coming into the pub and the baby being born and, you know, explain it all the way. And he said he went to investigate what this is about. And, of course, he went to the theologians. And he said it was a nightmare because he went to the theologians and they kept telling him how it didn't happen. 
And he didn't want to know how it didn't happen, so he went to the Bible, and he said that was difficult because there's only 400 words in the whole Bible about the birth of Jesus, at least in the New Testament, and that's also true. So he read the Bible, and then he thought, how do I do 400 words in two hours? And so he read what the early church said and many, many different things. And do you know this? This man, I think he came up with a far better representation. There are still problems with it, one or two biblical inaccuracies. But overall, he came up with a far, far better representation than, than actually I think I've, I've ever seen. And especially in the last scene where the baby is born, and it, the whole thing for me was so realistic, where the baby is born and where the shepherds and the wise men worship him. And it, for me, it was just absolutely astounding. There was a reality in it. I think sometimes we teach the nativity like a fairy story, but the reality of it is just incredible and is just wonderful. We look forward to Christ's coming. We look forward to His coming because it will be an enormous change and enormous difference. Simeon then for us is a model of expectant living and his posture is one, his position is one of faithful anticipation, looking forward. That should characterize the Christian life. Okay, that's Simeon. Let's go on to look at Mary. Mary's sorrow, verses 33 onwards. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Okay, when you're, let me again ask any of the children here. When you're happy, you sing or you laugh or you giggle. What happens when you hear bad news, when you're sad? Catherine, you cry, okay? Josiah? You can get angry too, that's right. Eden? You try and forget about it, yeah. You try and forget about it, you get angry, and you cry. See, always... We have, there are good things that we can see, and there are always things as well that are sad. And here's Mary, and she's had this great news. She's just had a baby being born, and she's been told who the baby is, and this is baby, this is Jesus, the Son of God. And yet, here there is a great sorrow. And this is where the sorrow stems from. Firstly, Mary took Jesus to the temple when she didn't have to. And what she's doing, and the significance of this, is a story from the Old Testament where Hannah had prayed for a baby, and baby Samuel came, and she went to the temple, and she dedicated baby Samuel to God, and he stayed in the temple. Mary took Jesus to the temple, and I think it's a very similar uh, picture where her child is being dedicated to God because of what she knows and what she has been told. But it's not all good news. You see, you'd like to hear the story of Jesus, and I heard a service over the weekend in which it was kind of like Jesus comes into the world and everything's brilliant and everything's good. No, it's not. Jesus comes into the world and he comes to heal the world, but there are real difficulties and real problems. Look at verse 34. This child is destined to cause the falling and the rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul also. Christ's coming 
brings peace to the world, but it also brings division in this way, that Jesus becomes the dividing line. Jesus becomes the great question, or rather the great question is what we think of Jesus, and depending on what our answer is, depending, will depend on how we react to Him and to other people. I think from our perspective, His words are a blessing if you're a Christian and that we shouldn't be surprised when our faith actually divides us from people. And we see there's a great divide in the world between those who follow Christ and those who don't. It's interesting, I don't like arguing. I know that's really strange, but I, some of you, I actually don't like arguing. And I don't like saying something or doing something that causes people to react emotionally and with anger against you. And I think many of us are like that, and I think in the church, sometimes, yes, you've got people who seem to like arguing and like to cause anger and want to upset people. And that's not the way of Christ. But the church in this country has become so wet and so woolly and so empty because we don't want to upset people. But Jesus is really, really upsetting. Now, I'm not the cute baby in the manger who doesn't do anyone any harm. That's fine. But Jesus, the Son of God, who takes away the sin of the world, the notion that somebody, that my sin is so horrible that somebody would have to die for it, let alone the Son of God, is, is deeply offensive to many, many people. The notion that we need salvation is deeply offensive, and you may find it deeply offensive. I don't need salvation. I think that it's, I find it astonishing that you can discuss with people in general the whole idea of whether there's a God or whatever, but the minute you start talking about Christ in reality, you sometimes get the most incredibly emotional and vitriolic reactions. Uh, I have a, a mailbag that's just absolutely full of, of people who, what puzzles me is why they hate a God they say doesn't exist. But there's a hatred in there, a reaction to Christ. When you begin to see who Jesus is, He doesn't allow you to go, oh, that's cute. The cute Jesus, the cute Christ, you can't take that. He's either the Lord or He's not. And that does create a dividing line. And you see that in so many different ways and amongst so many different people. We don't want that because we want Christ to unite people. And that's what brings together. I think it's wonderful in the church here. We have people with so many different backgrounds who come together and who, because of their common faith in Christ, we are united together. I hear people talk about the unity of humanity, and all the time I see the opposite. I see the unity of humanity when human beings come together in Christ. That's what we long for. But you see, she's told here something as well. Mary is told, specifically Mary, not just everybody, a sword will pierce your own soul too. Joy to the world. It's not the most joyful message in the world, is it? A sword will pierce your own soul too. Sometimes bad things happen to us, and we're glad we never saw them coming. I really don't want to know the bad things that are going to happen to me in 2011. We just face them, and we persevere through them. But sometimes God in His mercy prepares you for a period of time for a kind of suffering. 
that preparation doesn't ruin all your joyful experiences. Phil Rankin says this, it doesn't ruin all your joyful experiences, but it does sober you. It's something you reflect on from time to time. And we're told earlier that Mary pondered all these things in her heart. In fact, later on in, in verse 51, his mother treasured all these things in her heart. She pondered and she meditated on, here's this child that was born, but a sword will pierce your own soul. I think these words were part of God's gracious preparation for Mary for the great suffering that she went through. Those of you who have children, can you possibly imagine and contemplate your child being executed on a cross and you standing there watching that happen? I don't think you can. I don't think we really get it. But she knew that. This beautiful baby that she had, this child was destined for something that was going to rip her to shreds. And she was aware of it. It's not the comfortable Christianity that people want to latch onto. It's deep and it's mysterious and it hurts and it's real because it's life. Mary's relationship to Jesus was not just as his mother, but as someone who herself needed saved and would have to watch her son go through that for her as well as for the rest of the world. And then there's Anna's worship, verses 36 to 38. There was also prophetess Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She'd lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. I think that's Anna did two things that I hope we're able to do. One is give thanks to God. We give thanks to God for all that He has done for us in the midst of all our experiences. We don't just give thanks to God when everything is going well. We give thanks to God at all times. And she spoke about Jesus to all who were looking forward for redemption, looking when God's deliverance would start. I think there's one thing as, I, as personally as I go into 2011 that just convicts me more and more and more and more is that the people in this city, the people in this country are largely like sheep without a shepherd. They don't know. And we, if we're Christians, we have to tell people. It should be our aim to communicate and share the gospel with people. I think in this past couple of weeks, I've probably, in fact, I'm certain that I've spoken to more young men who are interested in the gospel than I've ever known. And my great burden for the, this city, walk through the city center today and really unusual today, it's walking through at about quarter to 10 on a Sunday morning. It's usually as dead as can be. It's absolutely buzzing and people just carrying bags because they're shopping because that's what salvation is. 
You will find your peace in shopping. You will find your salvation in shopping. You can go out and buy things. They're big discounts. You can go and do that. Boxing Day sales. That's what it's all about. But it's not. That's shallow and empty and pathetic. And these are people who need to hear about Jesus. And here's this elderly woman who, after seven years, her husband died. And she'd spent the time in the temple praising and serving God and what she wanted to do and what she was so keen to do and what she was able to do is speak about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. We have to talk. We have to speak. We have to share. We have to communicate. And then lastly, there's Jesus' own growth. Verses 39 Uh, verses 41 onwards, rather, for 39 onwards. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. And then we read the story of how he went to the temple, and he is in the temple, and he stays, and he discusses with the people who are there. After three days, they found him. His parents leave him. They're with a a crowd of people. Uh, They don't realize they've left him. Just one of those scenarios where mom thinks the wife's got the child and the wife thinks the husband's got the child. And they go back, they find him. Verse 47, everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Jesus was an extraordinary child, not because he worked miracles as a child, but because, I think particularly this, and it's the only thing I'll say about this, he was filled with wisdom and the grace of God, and he knew he had a relationship with God which was unique. Now, how Christ's consciousness grew as a child is really, really difficult. We don't know, actually. We don't know how that happened. But at age 12, he certainly was aware as he went to the temple where there were 100,000 visitors in Jerusalem for that Passover. He was aware of his relationship with God as his father. That relationship was first in his life. And even Mary and Joseph could see that their son had a character and wisdom that was beyond the normal child. And that's where all this comes back to. It just comes back to being about Jesus and who Jesus is and what Jesus did and why we follow Jesus. You know, my fear for 2011 is that the church forgets Christ. I'm not afraid of non-Christians and I I think we've got great news for non-Christians. But my fear is that the church will forget Jesus Christ, that we rely on ritual and religion, and that we argue about things that are so inconsequential compared with Jesus Christ, and that those who are supposed to be the priests and the prophets and the proclaimers of Jesus Christ that because they neglect Christ and forget Christ, the world doesn't see Christ. 
That's what we have to aim for. We have to aim to communicate who Jesus Christ is. Religion has no answers whatsoever other than false and pathetic answers to human weakness, human sinfulness, human pain, human sorrow, human suffering. There are no simple answers. We are not religious people in that sense. But we are like Simeon, I hope, who wait upon the Lord. Like Mary, who knows that even though the sorrow that is going to rip her inside, there's also going to be great joy and great healing. Like Anna, who gives thanks to God and speaks about the child to all who would come. I ask you just simply as you head into 2011, what your relationship to Christ is. If you're a Christian, is that in word only? Is that an experience from the past only? Or is it something that you feel, that you are burdened with, that you rejoice with now? And if you are not a Christian, I know that a lot of this might sound like complete rubbish to you. What's all this religious talk about Jesus? I hope you see it's not religious talk, but it is about Jesus. And of all the people, he's the only one worth following. You know, Tony Jordan, fascinating, again, in that interview, he was asked about would he be going to church on Christmas, and he said no, because he didn't want to go into a building with pews, hard wooden seats where people would tell him what to do. See what he's got? He's got the religious notion of what it is. But, he said, what I read and heard of Jesus Christ, there is nobody that spoke truth as much as him. That's interesting. Nobody speaks truth like this man. That is also from the Bible. And I hope that our purpose and our aim as this church in 2011 will be to communicate the glorious good news of Jesus Christ through thick and through thin that all may know and experience his love and joy and peace.